This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I'm so excited to have Dr. Jamie Seaman. She is a total badass. She is an integrative medicine OBGYN. She's a wife, a mom. She's Mrs. Nebraska. She also was on the Titan Games and she just got back from vacation and carved out time out of her busy schedule to connect. So I'm so excited to have you here. How was your vacation? Thanks for having me. Seriously, it's such an honor and I love the work that you're doing. My vacation was so wonderful. You know, I live a crazy busy life and vacation was always one thing that my husband and I could use to really unplug from the world. And we still, you know, tried in 2020, but this was like the first big family vacation since the pandemic. And we went to the lake and we had an amazing time. We got sunlight and got out on the water. We did boating, which is totally my vibe. Like I love either totally relaxing on the beach or doing something physically active. So it was a wonderful, wonderful vacation. And we made lots of memories, which is what it's about. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad that you're able to get away. I too kind of feel like in many ways, you know, everyone's lives were put on hold during the peak of the pandemic. We actually were in Montana. I was there on business. And so all of us went and we had a great time just hiking and being away, disconnecting as much as possible. My kids were, and they're teenagers, but they were completely appalled with the fact that they, we had very spotty Wi-Fi in the hotel. And they were like, oh my God. I'm like, this is actually a good thing. Like we should not be so connected all the time. So I know your daughters are a little younger, but there will come that time when they become like woefully preoccupied with technology. And I always tell them that I feel like in many ways, there's been both a blessing and a curse during the pandemic, lots of togetherness, but also they've been more connected to technology because in many ways, that's the only way they've been able to interact with friends. So I'm glad that things are feeling like they're getting back to some degree of normalcy. But I would love for you to share with the listeners. I really enjoyed getting to know a bit about your background. I know you were raised by a nurse mom, but did you always know that you wanted to become a physician or is that something that came a bit later in your trajectory? So there's no physicians in my family. My mother was a nurse, but early in her career, got into hospital administration and left bedside nursing, helped start this surgical center. And she was kind of the breadwinner in our family and kind of the leader of the household per se. And I've always looked up to my mom. She's one of the you know really biggest role models in my life, but I loved band-aids and I loved blood and I loved all that kind of stuff as a little kid. And my mom always tells this story. I was about three years old. My brother was five years old and we had this injury happened in my parents' house. We nailed heads together and my mom had to take us both to the emergency room and they kind of shuttled me off in this room. They didn't want to see me walk, you know, they didn't want me to watch my brother have to get these stitches. We both needed stitches in our heads. And I went back in the room and I'm like, can I have a mirror? Can I watch? They're like, who is this? Kid? <laughs> so that was totally me. I was very much, you know, infatuated with the human body. My mom thought that maybe I would go into nursing like her, but she also saw a lot of my personality traits and thought maybe I would be a teacher. And then I don't really remember how old I was, but I'd kind of expressed to my mother my interest in medicine and just kind of in healthcare in general. 
And she was the one that really said, listen, if I had to do this all over again, just knowing you as my daughter, I would have just went to medical school and became a physician, you know, instead of going to nursing school. And that was the first kind of realization as a little girl that I could like be a doctor. And, you know, people tell you this all the time, like you can be whatever you want to be, but there's no doctors in my family. I'd never really had this like figure to look up to. But clearly my mother believed in me. And so I was on this like pre-med tract and I went to college and I was going to get an exercise science degree. And I showed up on the first day of college and they said, we've eliminated the program. You're going to have to choose a new major. And I was like, oh my gosh, like now what do I do? And just these feelings of self-doubt, like I'm never going to get into medical school. So I chose a biology degree just because I felt like that's what everybody in medicine did. And then just started to have this moment of internal panic. What am I going to do when I get out of college of the biology degree if I don't get into medical school? And luckily, I started to have a change of heart and thought I would completely pivot and go into broadcasting. And the colleges of nutrition and exercise science ended up merging faculty. And it was a blessing in disguise the entire time because my undergraduate degree is in nutrition and exercise science. And, you know, now sitting where I am now in this chair, it was such a valuable piece of my education because it was way different than a lot of my friends that got their biology degree and that really only understood that basic science and not a lot of the things that truly matter in medicine. Well, I love that story. And and I think that it probably preemptively gave you an advantage over many of your peers, because as I talk about very openly, you know, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a PA, we get little to no education about nutrition. I actually had to go back and do a functional nutrition program and that completely lit me up because most of what you're taught is completely contrary to actually what will embody health and longevity. So you went to medical school, you had this nutrition and exercise science background. I know that you played college level sports, which I think is just incredible. And you mentioned in several of your interviews that when you got to medical school, which obviously is incredibly intense, things really changed for you. And so do you think that it was at that point in time that your eating habits changed? Was that the increased workload and stress level? Because for anyone that's, whether you're aware or not aware, medical school is just incredibly intense and all consuming. And so I would imagine that was quite a lifestyle shift for you on so many levels. Yeah. So here's this transition in my life where I'm going, you know, from being a collegiate level athlete, we've got these nutritionists. I mean, I was a college kid. I wasn't eating perfectly. I'm not going to lie. You know, I had some alcohol and things like that, but I have this huge shift in my life where I'm going from being like forced to be very physically active to now being suddenly very sedentary and sitting in the classroom for, you know, multiple hours per day, tests every single Saturday, I'm in the library and we didn't have children at the time, but it was definitely a shift downward in physical activity. And I had this trouble with maintaining my weight and I had just completed this nutrition and exercise science degree and what we had been taught. I mean, you say it's a blessing. I don't know. Like the things I was taught was like limit sodium, eat low fat, you know, count your calories. It's just salt and saturated fat that cause heart disease. So all I really understood at that point, even with a nutrition degree was just eat less calories and move more. So this was like during the P90X rage. So I decided find a couple medical student friends. Let's start doing these P90X videos and I'm just going to count my calories. And I was literally can like remember a moment. I was like counting goldfish and pretzels that I was like, okay, this is what I'm allowed to eat while I study at the library. It's like this amount of 
goldfish or pretzels. And I was able to maintain my weight okay. And sure, you know, P90X was great. But then my husband and I really wanted to start a family. We didn't want to wait until my medical training was completed. And so we decided third year of medical school to get pregnant. And we had trouble getting pregnant. I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. And I was missing my periods. I had come off years of birth control. So I really had no idea what was going on with my cycles. And I had to start metformin. And then my doctor ended up offering me Clomid um, to try to get pregnant. Luckily, I was able to get pregnant the first month of the medication. But what I was doing from a dietary perspective is I was really trying to eat a very low calorie diet because I thought all I've heard with PCOS is that if you lose 10% of your body weight, you can restore ovulation. Okay. So I said, well, I'm going to try to lose 10 pounds. And so I was working in a really small town in Nebraska at the time on a rotation. And I would go to the hospital cafeteria and I would go to the salad bar and I would get iceberg lettuce and put cottage cheese and sunflower seeds on it. And that was literally what I ate for like a month straight. And I lost some weight and I got pregnant. And <laughs> during my three pregnancies, I ended up having three pregnancies. They were all 23 months apart. My girls are all 23 months apart, but, and luckily I didn't have trouble getting pregnant with the second two, but during my pregnancies, I failed my glucose testing. After my first baby was born, I was diagnosed with hypothyroidism and then after my third baby was born, I uh, was still on thyroid medication and I was diagnosed with prediabetes with a very normal appearing BMI from the outside. So gosh, looking back now and knowing what I know now, like it all makes sense, but I didn't know back then, you know, what I was even doing. I mean, luckily I had three pregnancies. Luckily I have three very healthy babies, but holy smokes, it's just crazy to think back at the advice I was given and how I ever got through it all. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's interesting to me. I didn't know until we started trying to get pregnant that I probably had very mild PCOS that had been masked by being on oral contraceptives because I was one of those people that they put me on oral contraceptives because my cycles were irregular. They're like, oh, this will fix that. And so you know, being 17, 18 years old, that sounded fantastic. I can control my menstrual right, cycle. I can take right. Exactly. If I don't want to take it, if I don't want to have a period that month, I can just start my new pack of pills. It's fantastic. But not until we started trying to get pregnant, did we realize that I probably had mild PCOS and much to your point, not every person with PCOS is obese. You can be slender, you can be small. And so what are some of the misnomers that people have about PCOS? Because for the benefit of listeners who may not be as familiar with what this is, I know a lot of listeners sometimes are focusing on the other, you know, the reverse puberty changes that are happening. But for the benefits of listeners, let's unpack what PCOS is so they can better understand how that can impact ovulation, how that can impact infertility, how our diet really kind of feeds into developing this. And obviously there's some genetic susceptibility because it wasn't until I had to go on Clomid to ovulate that three or four of my aunts were like, oh yeah, we had to take Clomid to get pregnant with our children. And I was like, why is no one talking about this? Like, it's almost like it's a, you know, it's a, no one wants to mention this because it's just not PC. Yeah. Well, first of all, PCOS is a really poor name for the disease. And I've been coming up with new naming trends that I keep hoping will stick, but you know, so many patients come to me and they're like, oh, I've had a cyst on my ovary. I think I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And the ovary's job is to make cysts. Every single month, a certain number of follicles are stimulated by the pituitary gland. And this follicle pool, eventually one of them will become a dominant follicle. 
it will ovulate in a perfect world. It will become a corpus luteum and then it will, then it will regress and, and go away. So the ovary's job is to make cysts up to like two to three centimeters in size, very normal. But the clinical features of polycystic ovarian syndrome, the, the criteria for diagnosis is essentially threefold. So you need to have either no periods at all, we call that amenorrhea, or you have, you know, you're skipping periods, we call that oligomenorrhea. So you're only having, you know, maybe six periods a year, or you have really, really, really prolonged cycles. The second criteria is either serum levels of high androgens, so high testosterone, high DHEAS, or you have clinical signs of hirsutism. So you don't even have to draw the blood. The woman will come in and she's got really dark hair growth on the face or on the chest, down into the navel. Maybe it extends down her legs, you know, past the vulva. And, or maybe she's got, you know, problems with acne or other androgenic features. And so, and we tend to see this a lot in athletes, which is, you know, I was a three sport athlete. I was, I'm very athletically inclined. I build muscle easily. So I kind of fit that phenotype very well. And then the third criteria is polycystic ovaries. And so if you do an ultrasound, you can actually see a ton of these little follicles that are like trying to, you know, develop, but they don't. And you, so you kind of see this clinical feature of what we call like string of pearls around the ovary. And so it, it all depends on how big they are and how many there are. And there, we don't have to necessarily get into that, but essentially you need two out of three criteria to give the diagnosis of PCOS. But you touched on something. Oh, I had like a little bit of PCOS. It's such a spectrum. We have patients that are skinny all the way to patients that are obese. We have patients who, you know, it's real subtle. Maybe they have a little bit of elevation in testosterone. The periods are a little off all the way to women who are completely, you know, amenorrheic. They've got like a full beard and all the other, you know, downward manifestations of PCOS. But at the root cause, and you hit on it, we don't know. There's definitely things we don't know. There's some genetic susceptibility. If your mother had PCOS and you're a female born to her, you're more likely to have PCOS. So God bless my three children, my three daughters. (laughs) Here is the book I'm going to write about your life. But they're at the root of all of this is insulin resistance. And it's not necessarily overt peripheral insulin resistance. Not all these people have diabetes. Some of them can pass the glucose tolerance test, but essentially what's happening is this insulin is driving increased androgen production from the ovaries. The androgens get aromatized into estrogens. It is inhibiting this feedback loop into the pituitary gland. So we see disturbances in FSH and LH secretion. And then it's inhibiting ovulation. So no egg is released, which means no progesterone is produced, which is kind of this predominant estrogen state. And so these patients don't have periods. When they do have periods, they're extremely heavy. They have higher rates of infertility. They have other estrogen dominant syndromes. They have an increased risk of metabolic disease, including cardiovascular disease and diabetes long-term. Many of them tend to be obese, but not all of them are. The skinny kind of PCOS phenotype is much harder to treat, in my opinion, because I think there's probably a lot more genetics at play there. But it's interesting when you look at the literature on PCOS that some of the mainstay treatments, like I said, when I would pull up the literature, it said, tell the patient to lose 10% of their body weight. It'll restore ovulation. Well, there you can lose weight a lot of ways. You can lose weight on a McDonald's diet or a Twinkie diet or whatever it is, right? You can lose weight a lot of ways, but that's not really helping at the root cause. And I, of course, found that out because I got pregnant and then I went back to eating all this crappy food and I got gestational diabetes. So when we think about what the treatment should be for PCOS is nutrition should be the absolute number one treatment. It's very simple. If you remove 
dietary carbohydrates from the diet. We reduce levels of insulin secreted, which means that we can help bring down the androgens, restore the ratio of FSH to LH, restore ovulation, restore progesterone production, and things tend to get better. They tend to lose weight. They ovulate. They can get pregnant. In my clinical practice, I've been able to get a lot of PCOS patients pregnant without the use of medications like metformin or Clomid or Femara. But when you really look at the literature, it's like they want to put these patients on birth control pills if they're not trying to get pregnant because it just makes the problem go away. It protects the endometrium. It protects the uterus. It can help with some of their androgen symptoms. And so there's just all sorts of reasons why they shouldn't go on them. But a lot of patients just get put on birth control pills. If they need birth control, that's one thing. I'm a fan of contraception. You should have the ability to plan your pregnancies. But And then, you know, they look at other treatments of the androgen symptoms. So of course, it's very distressing as a woman to have acne or hair growth. So there's some things that you can do on an aesthetic level, spironolactone, which you don't want them to get pregnant on that. So you put them on both birth control pills and spironolactone. (laughs) But the problem is, is it might make some of these things better, but then at some point they want to get pregnant and now you're back to square one. You know, they come off the medicine and you haven't actually fixed the problem. And for me, I'm just so passionate about it, not only because I, that was me, you know, when you can put yourself in the chair where the patient is and really understand, you know, how they feel about this situation, you know, I think you have another level of empathy. But when we think about pregnancy, the influence of epigenetics and the fact that the recommendations that I make to a pregnant woman influence her baby's DNA and then her baby's DNA. And so we're talking about like for generations to come. Because high androgen exposure in pregnancy has an epigenetic influence. And so I'm just real passionate about it because that conversation isn't happening. I want women to always feel empowered that they have so many choices to make that could really profoundly impact their long-term health. Well, and I think it's so important. I mean, obviously I'm at the other end. We're done having babies. We have teenagers at home. But I think how different things could have been for me as a teenager and a young adult before I was ready to have children, had I known what I know now. And I love that you are so proactive because I think that really makes a difference. I think, I feel like this generation is asking more of their healthcare professionals that they want to look at things a little differently. Someone was asking me the other day, you know, how many years I've been on oral contraceptives. And I said, probably from 17. And I got married when I was 32. And I said, so that amount of time, because I, you know, you get to a point where, yes, I, it's very convenient not to get a period. And then you just get accustomed to, I had horrible PMS and I probably actually didn't have terrible PMS, but I had terrible PMS symptoms while on oral contraceptives, never felt better when I stopped, assumed that, you know, fertility, the fertility switch would just switch on. And that's a whole other kind of misnomer that people assume you go off oral contraceptives, you're going to be able to get pregnant immediately. There are a lot of people who don't, they end up having, you know, this persistent amenorrhea issues that I had before were just exacerbated. So I'm so very grateful that there are healthcare professionals like yourself that are kind of challenging the more common notions that we had about a lot of these issues. And so, you know, you went through this infertility period, went on to have three healthy pregnancies and three healthy babies. At what point after you had been diagnosed with gestational diabetes and, you know, you're a new mom, probably in residency during all of this, did you start putting pieces together about nutrition? Like when did all of that start to come together for you personally? Well, You know, after my third daughter was born, I had kind of a big tragedy that happened in my life. I lost one of my best friends in the middle of her pregnancy. We were actually both pregnant at the same time. 
she passed away during my third pregnancy. So I went on to deliver and was just kind of in this really low part of my life. And I knew with my previously failed glucose testing, my father is a normal BMI diabetic and his parents were both normal BMI diabetics. And then come to find out now later in life, my mom (laughs) has prediabetes. And so I definitely knew that from a genetic standpoint, I was very susceptible to this. So I was the one that actually advocated to check my hemoglobin A1C and found out I had prediabetes. I'd never checked my blood sugars, you know, outside of, you know, pregnancy or anything like that. And I couldn't figure out why I had hypothyroidism. I was trying to read about why people get postpartum hypothyroidism, but I was tired and I didn't feel good. And I just thought, really like, this is what life is like, you know, when you're a busy mom and you're a doctor. And I just kind of had this sense of burnout. I had kind of watched my friend kind of get failed in the medical system. We couldn't save her life. And so it was really March of 2015. I decided that I was going to live my life differently. I was going to get rid of my diabetes. I was going to get rid of my hypothyroidism and I was going to do it through nutrition. I'm like, dude, I have this degree. I have a medical degree. If I'm going to ask my patients to do these things, I'm going to walk the walk and talk the talk. Okay. So I'm going to figure this out for myself first. So I kind of set out, I said, okay, eat whole foods. That makes sense to me. Let's eat whole food. You know, so I started kind of whole 30. Then I realized I like cheese. (laughs) I tried to transition into like paleo. I was like, no, I really like cheese. (laughs) And so in early 2016 is when I adopted a ketogenic diet. And, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. It was kind of forefront of when keto became kind of a hot new thing, but the weight started to come off. It was like the fog started to lift. My thyroid function improved. My hemoglobin A1C normalized. And I was like sold. I'm like, this is incredible. But in the medical world, people were like, you're promoting the ketogenic diet. People were saying like, you should have your medical license reviewed. (laughs) And I was trying to share openly about it. You know, it was right when I started my social media, just because I feel like there was another woman out there that was like in my position and I'm the doctor and I'm supposed to know all this. And I'm just kind of figuring it out, you know, late in my career. And so I've never looked back. There's been variations of my diet. I'm much more animal-based now than I was prior you know, there's definitely new literature that's come out. I've incorporated intermittent fasting at times just with my crazy lifestyle. So there's definitely been different variations and I'm not zero carb by any means. I've kind of fluctuated back and forth with adding things like squash or sweet potatoes. Now that I've reversed my insulin resistance, you know, the goal for me really is just metabolic health. And I check my markers very regularly. And I think that's kind of the end game, you know, is it's not zero carb forever when you have insulin resistance. It's teaching your body how to burn both fat and glucose as a fuel source so that you have more metabolic flexibility. And at the end of the day, it's just how you feel and function best because my fit and fabulous brand is really, you know, you can't be filling other people's cups if your pitcher's empty. And so when you take care of yourself, when you eat right, when you sleep right, when you move right, you have energy to go out there and impact the world and do all the amazing things that you want to do. And you, you know, named off things that I've done in the last couple of years, which is great, but they were all really a product of me changing the controllable things in my life. And I think it's so important, you know, for anyone that's listening, it feels like I'm X age and it's too late or, 
you know, because I'm in these circumstances, I can't do this. I mean, I tell people openly, I, you know, my whole background in medicines, ER medicine and cardiology. So you talk about like the sickest of the sick. And I just got to a point where, I mean, all I did was write prescriptions every day, lots of prescriptions. I mean, sometimes 10 or 15 per patient. And I kept saying it all starts with food. And my cardiology colleagues who are supportive of me would kind of like poo-poo me. They're like, oh, this is cute. Our nurse practitioner really likes to talk to people about food. And I kept saying, we're missing the boat. It all starts with food. The food that we eat impacts our health pervasively. And you know, what I found ironic was that all the cardiologists that I worked with and all the NPs were all very thin. All of us worked really hard to make sure we were making good food choices. But then what we were telling our patients oftentimes was completely the antithesis of, you know, what was keeping us, you know, relatively healthy. And so, you know, on so many levels, I love that we're seeing all these shifts for metabolic flexibility. And most recent statistic I read was, I think it's 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. And so that means 88% are either obese or overweight. And that means that there's 12% of people out there that remain able to, you know, their body's able to utilize either fats or, you know, glucose as a primary fuel source, depending on what their needs are. And I just think that we've really conditioned our patients in many ways to ask for prescriptions instead of doing, and it's the hardest work. The hardest work is the lifestyle piece and better quality sleep and stress management and and getting physical activity and lifting weights. That is much harder in my opinion than, you know, just prescribing a medication, but that's what we've conditioned, you know, both the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, our training is just, we're very pill focused. You know, it's like the symptom is managed by a pill. And I'm like, well, if we dig a little deeper, there's more to it than that. Well, and I mean, I think that, you know, it's hard for me to, you know, look at my colleagues in medicine and blame them because, you know, first of all, there's a lack of education about nutrition and some of these things in standard medical education, but the way that the medical system is designed, the way that we get paid, the way that we make money for our practice or the hospital or whoever you work for is by seeing more patients. And so the way that clinics are designed is that patients are in a 5, 10, 15 minute slot at most. So they come back with their hypertension and their diabetes. And there's no possible way for you to do that amount of education in that amount of time. So where you have to rely on these ancillary services. And then I'm sending them to a nutritionist that literally got the same degree that I did that was told to eat low sodium and low fat, and that's going to prevent their heart disease. And so, you know, it's really the way that our medical system is designed. It's okay to take care of chronic disease here, take this medicine. Okay. Add this medicine. Okay. Do this, do that, do that. When, I mean, we mean well, but we're not really fixing these things. We're just like putting band-aids on it. And so I get it. It's not sexy. We're asking for patients to have a level of personal accountability when it comes to these things, but it's not an easy fix. Yeah. And I want to be really clear. I mean, I left clinical medicine five years ago and I have nothing but respect for my peers. I agree that sometimes, you know, we're in a losing situation because the current medical model is not designed for most providers to be able to practice the way that if they wanted to be able to sit down and talk about nutrition or talk about lifestyle piece, they're just not given the amount of time to be able to do that. And there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, frankly, about, you know, the nutrition science that's being done and applying it to the current medical paradigm. And so I always say like, I have nothing but respect and admiration because especially in the last 18 months, 
the medical community has borne the brunt of this pandemic. And so I never want to sound unappreciative or ungrateful because they're doing a lot of hard work right now. And so I want to be really clear about that. But let's pivot a little bit because I think one of the other key areas that I feel like is oftentimes really neglected is when women are, and I know you're in the thick of things as a OBGYN, you know, women have, you know, they have menstrual cycles, they're dealing with contraception, they have pregnancies, they have babies. And then women largely may be done having families and then they kind of sail or not so much into perimenopause and menopause. And so I didn't actually know what perimenopause was until I hit it like a wall. And I always am very open and honest and just say that I'm a trained medical professional and I knew very little to nothing about this time period. How do you think we're doing a different slash better job educating our patients about this transitional period when maybe their periods are waxing and waning, the hormones are fluctuating, they may start experiencing more challenges with sleep, weight gain, energy issues. How are we doing things differently than probably 20, 30 years ago? Yeah. So, you know, perimenopause, essentially what's happening in a woman's body is that a woman is born with all the eggs she'll ever have in her lifetime. You know, she's born with like 400,000 or like, you know, over a million and then 400,000 by the time she starts menstruating, but then you only release, you know, a couple hundred in your lifetime. And as that pool of eggs gets lower, so every single month, it's like asking 20 people to come to the party and only one of them supposed to come to the party. But then eventually like the, the brain is yelling at the ovaries and only like two people want to come to the party <laughs> and then no one shows up. And so what's happening is that pool of follicles gets smaller. We're seeing kind of these very erratic estrogen levels, you know, during perimenopause, it's like psychotic is how I describe it. And then when you don't ovulate on the months, you don't ovulate, there's no progesterone production. Now this is a natural, natural phenomenon where the medical system is failing these women as they're like, well, this is natural just, <laughs> you know, embrace these changes, like embrace aging and, or some people don't realize it's perimenopause, you know, they're having anxiety, they're having depression, they're having insomnia, they're gaining weight, they're becoming insulin resistant. All these things are kind of like creeping up on them and that's perimenopause. And you know, years ago, we used to really, you know, look at women and think that hormone replacement was such a good thing. It would prevent the chronic diseases of aging that happened after menopause, because once women officially go through menopause, which is the clinical definition is 12 months with no periods, we start to equal men as far as the cardiovascular risk, because as we lose estrogen, we start to deposit more visceral fat around the organs. We become more insulin resistant. Our brain doesn't function as well. We have an increased risk of dementia our bones start to weaken, we start to increase risk of osteopenia and osteoporosis. So we used to give a lot of these women hormone replacement therapy, and women definitely did feel better. And then these trials came out, the WHI trial and a couple others that really scared a lot of people away from using hormone replacement therapy. And now we're kind of seeing the pendulum swing the other way. But what we're not really acknowledging in this situation is that there are things that women can do. You know, I always kind of talk about these five pillars, which are like nutrition, movement, stress, sleep, and environment. And all of these things can have an effect on how we go through this transition, how we feel during this transition. Because if you're coming into perimenopause with a backpack full of bricks on your back, it's going to make it really hard. You know, <laughs> yes. whereas you have a woman that's, she's optimizing everything. And yes, this is happening but these patients tend to feel better. And so hormone replacement therapy is certainly kind of this individualized thing that should be 
taken into account a woman's history and family history and, and there's small risks associated with it, but I'm a huge fan of hormone replacement therapy in my practice. And I wish more women talked about perimenopause and menopause because I find very commonly that women will say, my mom never talked to, you know, I'll say like, how old was your mom? Well, I don't know. She never talked about it. My aunt never talked about it. No woman in my family has ever talked to me about this. And so they're just having to ask their girlfriends, Hey, what are you feeling? You know? Oh, you feel the same way. Okay. This must be perimenopause. And the other hard part is that these patients will come into their doctor and be like, I think it's my hormones. Can you check my hormones? And doctors are like, we shouldn't test them. It doesn't matter. And the reason is, is because it's really hard to test hormones because from morning to night, from Monday to Tuesday, from Monday to Monday, from the first of the month to the next to the first of the month, hormone levels fluctuate. It's all over the place. And so when you're just drawing a blood one time at three o'clock on Thursday afternoon, it's just telling you what they were at three o'clock on Thursday afternoon. And then of course, there's people that do saliva testing and urine testing, and there's different ways and there's pros and cons to all of them, but it's hard to actually test. So we have to go by clinical symptoms and how patients feel. And but we have to acknowledge that some of these lifestyle things can make a huge impact on this natural period in a woman's life. Yeah. And I think that, you know, on top of this, which compounds that there's a lot of shame, you know, as women are making this transition. And I just say this because I'm paraphrasing hundreds of conversations I've had with women, girlfriends, family members, much to your point, my mom's a nurse. My mom never had a conversation with me about any of this, you know, from my perspective that there seems like there's this shared shaming, you know, people are afraid to get older They're afraid to no longer be fertile because I don't know what they necessarily anticipate that looks like for them. Somehow they're considered to be old or I've had women use this terminology. And so I have to, you know, sometimes give myself grace when I'm talking to women, understanding that there's so many variables that impact their comfort level, having these discussions. And I agree wholeheartedly that the way that you navigate perimenopause successfully or not into menopause largely is impacted by your sleep quality, your interpersonal relationships, the foods that you choose to eat. And this is where I say all the time, you know, what we ate in our twenties and thirties may no longer serve us in our forties and fifties. And so for me personally, when I slammed into the wall of perimenopause and someone I'm sure good naturedly said to me, well, you're 44 years old, you know, so what if you gain five or 10 pounds, like, you know, you're 44 years old. And so like hearing those kinds of things, I kept saying, but if you're, if this isn't normal for you and you're not changing anything, like, why is this happening? And even for myself with all the knowledge that I have. So for many people, I find that they have to pull inflammatory foods out. Maybe dairy no longer agrees with you. Maybe gluten or grains or, you know, alcohol is a good example. You know, as I was making that transition, I've never been a big drinker, but if I had alcohol, I would for sure get a hot flash when I would go to bed and I would for sure have a horrible night of sleep. And so I would say to my husband, as I was trying to explain to friends, I just don't drink anymore because it's not worth it. Like I'd rather get a good night's sleep, but we're not having those conversations, which makes it even more challenging. What I do find interesting, and I was actually just talking to my realtor today and she is menopausal. And she said to me, I am on hormone replacement therapy. And I was like, great. So my sleep is horrible. And I was like, well, do they have me on progesterone? And she was like, no. I said, what do they have you on? And she was like, Premarin. And I said, okay. I was like, let's have a sidebar conversation when we're done with all these other things. But I think there's so much misinformation about, as you mentioned, hormone replacement therapy, 
synthetic versus bioidentical therapy versus, you know, there are even people, you know, there's like the Wiley protocol, which that was one of the questions I got to ask you. There's so much flux and, you know, some of it's good information and some of it's not that people don't know how to make good decisions. And I I think if we're not proactively having those conversations with our patients, I know that you are, but I think there's probably other providers that may not be proactively doing that. It just makes for more ambiguity, uncertainty. People are like, what in the heck is going on with my body? Like, where did this come from? Yeah, yeah. Hormone replacement therapy, there's so many providers that have been scared away from using hormone replacement therapy based on old data you know, now that's been kind of refiltered through and the WHI trial in particular is what scared a lot of people away because there was an increased risk of breast cancer in the patients taking estrogen and progesterone, not in the estrogen only arm. It was actually somewhat protective in that arm. But now the thing about it is that these were synthetic. So it was equine estrogens. They essentially come from horse urine and oh, thanks. Progestin. <laughs> so there's never been, you know, a good trial looking at quote unquote bioidentical. And a lot of people, you know, the how you kind of think of it as like a lock and a key. Like if you've ever used the wrong key in a lock, that's not supposed to go with that key, right? Like sometimes you can get it to turn, but maybe it doesn't, you know, it's not sending the right same signal. Now there'll be people that argue that it's the same, you know, downstream effect. There's also a misconception that, you know, all bioidenticals are compounded. No, we actually have bioidentical FDA approved prescription options. And so there's tons of ways that you can replace, you know, hormones. Now, there's safer methods. So one of the things that came out of the WHI trial was risk of blood clot and stroke. Now, most of the women in these trials were older. They weren't good candidates. They were obese. A lot of them were smokers. And so when we look, you know, individually at a woman and who's a good candidate, there really is clear evidence that there's this kind of golden window of opportunity. And it really tends to be within five to 10 years of menopause tends to be kind of this golden window of opportunity where you can make an impact on long-term health, reduce risk of dementia. There was a trial just a couple of years ago showing that, and it was a, a group of women in Utah, reduce risk of osteoporosis, osteopenia, cardiovascular disease, you know, you name it. But the, you know, American Menopause Society, you know, comes out with these statements that still scare a lot of people away. And when you look at the data that they use to make a lot of these recommendations, they really cherry pick a lot of data. You know, it's kind of like I was recording a podcast earlier talking about salt and saturated fat. And you take whatever it is, salt. There was a lot of cherry picking of data. The seven country study was saturated fat. The same thing has happened with hormones. They took like 13 studies that were convenient for them, that gave them the message they wanted. And they've really ignored a lot of other well-designed you know, designed studies. And clinical experience comes with this too. I mean, I can just tell you, you know, that women feel significantly better. It can make a huge impact on quality of life. So although for some women, there is a small risk of some of these things, you know, we really have to balance uh, quality of life with it. And so back to the blood clot, you know, uh, risk, we've never seen that with transdermal estrogens, meaning given through the skin or sublingual or subdermal therapies, vaginal estrogen therapy. I really is honestly my personal opinion that almost hundred percent of women should be on vaginal estrogen therapy. It's very safe, even for people with breast cancer. I have so many breast cancer patients whose oncologists have scared them away from using very low dose estrogen therapy in the vagina. And I'm telling you right now that if men's penises shriveled up, 
when they went through andropause that a hundred percent of them would be on some kind of cream on their penis to fix this problem. <laughs> but it starts to affect women's relationships. It increases their risk of urinary tract infections, you know, pelvic discomfort, atrophic vaginitis. So I'm a huge fan of estrogen therapy for almost everybody. And then systemic therapy is certainly just very individualized, but you're right. I'm totally making a presumption about this person you were talking about earlier that was on estrogen only therapy. Maybe she'd had a hysterectomy, so she didn't need progesterone, but there's still sometimes a, you know, a place for progesterone supplementation for sleep, for anxiety. There's things that micronized progesterone can really help with. And then of course, androgen replacement in some of these women is another controversial topic. And now it certainly needs to be done by a provider that understands what they're doing because over-replacement of androgens can give women a lot of side effects that they don't like, dark hair growth, you know, acne and things like that. But testosterone replacement does have its place in sexual function and bone health and muscle health and those types of things. So there's lots of ways to replace it. And I'm a huge fan of it, but you just want to find a provider that's, you know, well-read and comfortable and has a lot of experience doing it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's really unfortunate. I have a colleague that, you know, went through estrogen positive breast cancer treatment. She's also a healthcare professional. And, you know, I've had these roundabout conversations, like maybe we need to find you a new GYN to talk about the vaginal estrogens, just based on what I, and I said, I'm certainly not a specialist, but based on what I'm reading, because the vaginal atrophy symptoms can impact not just the woman, but also their interpersonal relationship with their significant other. I was horrified to learn that, you know, it's kind of like you use it or lose it. Meaning, you know, if you go through periods of time of, you know, you have painful intercourse, so you avoid having intercourse and lubes aren't working and you get to a point where you just abstain from having sexual intercourse with your partner that you get from what I understand, and you can let me know otherwise, you can get significant structural changes to the vaginal orifice that are going to be permanent. And so someone said that, you know, you're, it'll actually shorten and this atrophy, like I think part of it's the loss of estradiol that impacts the lactobacilli that normally live there. So there's like a domino effect that can occur. And so really encouraging people to have those conversations, even if you're embarrassed or uncomfortable, I mean, have those conversations with your healthcare provider so that you can get, you know, properly treated so that you're not in a position where you've just decided like, I'm just going to be celibate for the rest of my life. Because I think that, you know, having sexual activity, having sexual intercourse with your partner is really an important part of your relationship. And so I say that as my friendly PSA, because I have had so many women talking to me about this recently. And I keep saying, go back and have a conversation with your GYN or your midwife so that, you know, you're addressing this and not waiting five years to when you get to a point where, you know, you just, it's just too painful to even consider, or, you know, the other piece of it is I see a lot of women doing these laser therapies. I don't know if you have any opinions about that. I'm sure you get to see the impact of women that probably come to you after the fact, but, you know, I probably would err on the side of wanting to use intravaginal estrogen before I would consider laser therapy. And I don't know if you have an opinion, but there were several questions that I got. That was one of them. Yeah. So estrogen therapy, there's also androgen therapy you can use in the vagina that aromatizes locally to estrogen. So there's vaginal DHEA, but what happens when you lose the estrogen is you lose the cells that line the vagina, kind of lose their plumpness. They become pale, they become thin, they become dry, lack of lubrication. And you're right. We can see kind of this shortening of the vagina. We can see kind of a decrease in the 
size of the opening of the vaginal introitus. And so sometimes it can make penetrative intercourse uncomfortable or difficult. And so, yes, it is kind of a use it or lose it. Sometimes in these situations, women have abstained. Maybe they've had the death of a partner and now they have a new partner. Or sometimes we send these women to use vaginal dilators or pelvic floor physical therapy so that they can reinitiate those sexual relationships. And it is such a taboo subject. You know, some providers don't feel comfortable talking about it. Patients don't feel comfortable bringing it up. I find a lot of patients, unless you directly ask, you know, and I'm one of those people that always asks about sexual function, you know, can you have an orgasm? Do you have problems with dryness? Do you have pain with intercourse? You know, if they say I'm not having intercourse, is that by choice or is that because, you know, there's a problem? And so you really want to tease these things out because sexual relationships are normal and a healthy, you know, they're part of a woman's health. There was a study I came across recently looking at the number of orgasms that a woman has in a week or a month or a year and having two per week reduced a woman's mortality by, I can't remember the percentage off the top of my head, but it's a normal part of women's sexual health. So you kind of brought up this, these other kind of what we call vaginal rejuvenation therapies and what these therapies are. There's a couple of different ones on the market. One is a a CO2 laser, which essentially delivers a level of heat to the vaginal epithelium that creates kind of these little micro defects, just like people use CO2 ablative lasers on the face. It stimulates the fibroblasts to make these kind of columns of collagen underneath the vaginal epithelium. It can help slightly with some of the atrophy symptoms and the lubrication and just kind of the plumpness because of the collagen production underneath that surface epithelium. And then there's another device on the market that uses radio frequency, monopolar radio frequency with a cooling, a cryogen cooling uh, aspect to it at the same time to make it comfortable for the patient. But once again, it's really the same idea, but it does get a little bit deeper into the tissue by delivering this heat source that stimulates the fibroblast to make collagen. And so, you know, there's trials looking at mild urinary incontinence symptoms, vaginal dryness, you know, healing of poorly healed obstetrical wounds, just generalized vaginal laxity, but it all just depends, especially when it comes to vaginal laxity, everybody thinks you're going to get this treatment and it's going to like tighten up the vagina like it, you know, was when you were 20 or 30 or something. But <laughs> if you have children, you know, and there's damage to the pelvic floor, there's there's different layers we're talking about here. There's vaginal epithelium, there's connective tissue and muscles. And so it doesn't correct all of those things. Now there's other modalities out there that target that. There's one that targets the musculature, like a chair that you sit on that helps contract those muscles and it brings blood flow to the nerves and the blood vessels and the muscles. And there's a newer one that uses sound wave technology, very similar to the technology used for men with Gaines wave that, that targets the clitoral tissue with sound waves to help kind of work on that neovascularization and the kind of just repairing some of the damage to those nerve endings that can happen with time. So there's a boatload of modalities out there. The unfortunate part is a lot of these are cash pay procedures. So you'll see them in a lot of med spas. They get oversold. The benefits get oversold to a lot of women. And I'm not saying that they do. Some of them really do have benefits, but unfortunately these are services that kind of fall in the world of Botox. And if you can't afford them, you can't get them. So, but vaginal estrogen therapy is safe and effective for many women. And I'd like to say it's cheap and effective, but the coverage on formularies sometimes is really bad. The cash pay can still be really high. It's not a well-covered service. It's just sad for really women and women's health across the board because hormone replacement therapy is not well-covered. And that's really a shame on so many levels because I think back to, and I'm going to date myself, Viagra came out on the scene when I was a new nurse practitioner 
And the joke was we could never carry enough samples in the office. So I worked for a cardiology practice. So we had clinic and then hospital time. And the joke was all the male cardiologists that were middle-aged and older were the ones that were taking the samples home. And so if we can get Viagra coverage or Cialis coverage, we should be able to get, you know, hormonal support coverage for sure. Now I want to be respectful of your time, but I did get some questions. They were kind of all over the place. People were asking, you know, do you use the Dutch in your clinical practice? This is a dried urine and saliva test that some healthcare professionals are using now. And you mentioned earlier that hormones are challenging to test for because they fluctuate hour to hour, minute to minute, day to day. Is this something that you're using in clinical practice right now? I do use it, but not for everybody. For certain situations where we're trying to, you know, tease things out. Like I said, if we do serum testing, it's a snapshot in time. The nice part about, you know, Dutch testing is we can do cycle mapping where we look at estrogen and progesterone production over the course of a cycle. Okay, that can be helpful. I like the salivary component for cortisol, not necessarily for the other metabolites of, uh, well, it's not looking at the metabolites, but not for estrogen and progesterone and androgens, but I like it for cortisol. The inaccuracies with some of the urinary metabolites is that there can be some genetic influence of you know, how you spill those metabolites into your urine. And so anytime we find something on Dutch that looks inaccurate, I'll a lot of times back it up with serum testing, clinical signs and symptoms before we say like, oh my gosh, like, look at this, this is so off. But I think it's a good test as far as kind of looking at the overall picture of like, Mm -hmm. what's going on with their cortisol? How do they metabolize their estrogen, which I think is something I never thought of when I was going through training. There's different pathways of estrogen metabolism and there's so many different things that can affect those pathways. And if you have somebody on hormone replacement therapy, you want them metabolizing their estrogen. It's a hormone I called use it and lose it. You want to use it. You don't want it to hang around. You don't want it to get reabsorbed. So there are, you know, different aspects of Dutch testing that can be helpful, but it's not for everybody. And it doesn't always give you all the answers. Sometimes you need additional tests to kind of put all the puzzle pieces together. No, I think that's a great answer. Next question, low carb and keto and thyroid health, because there's still this kind of what I perceive to be old science that you need a certain amount of carbohydrates in order to get, you know, healthy T4 to T3. So inactive to active thyroid hormone conversion. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So it all kind of depends on what the reason is that you have low thyroid function. So insulin resistance by itself can cause hypothyroidism and it can be kind of this vicious storm. I just did a post on it literally just a couple of days ago, if anybody wants to go check that out, but there's a lot of other cofactors required. You need adequate iodine. You definitely need adequate selenium, which is one that, you know, people don't think about or talk about. And so there's lots of other cofactors involved with thyroid. Now where I think a lot of the misconception comes is that People will say, oh, the patient went on a low-carb diet and their thyroid hormones dropped. Now, I, of course, have had the luxury of being able to test myself a lot, especially with a history of hypothyroidism, and I'm no longer on thyroid medication, and my thyroid is corrected with a low-carb diet. Well, I think the root cause of hypothyroidism was my insulin resistance, and I fixed that, and suddenly my thyroid get better. Now, weight loss in general, weight loss across the board will cause a reduction in thyroid hormone. This is the body's protective mechanism through nutrient sensing pathways. It's sensing that there's less calories coming in. So I'm going to conserve energy. I'm going to turn down the motor a little bit. So just diets across the board, if you're in a calorie deficit, you'll see a lowering of thyroid function. Now, when we look at the studies that have been done on low-carb and ketogenic Jeff Volick and a few people have published thyroid data on patients participating in these trials. 
And we do see reduction in free T3 in people that are on, you know, low carb diets. And so the, you know, people like to say, well, that's because you need carbs to convert to T3. But what we don't see, and what I haven't seen clinically, is a concomitant rise in TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. If they're truly hypothyroid with low free T3 levels, we should see this rise in TSH. The brain should be saying, hey, we need more thyroid hormone, but it's not. And a lot of them don't tend to have hypothyroidism symptoms. And so they theorize that kind of as insulin sensitivity improves, which happens on a low-carb diet, thyroid sensitivity improves. So like the level of the nucleus of the cell where T3 interacts, there's probably an increase in thyroid sensitivity. So I have no problem with patients who have, you know, disorders. Once again, you have to know, is this autoimmune in nature? Is this a nutrient deficiency? Is this because of their insulin resistance? And so you want a provider that can tease that out, but it's certainly a misconception and I have no problem with it. You know, we have to monitor, but Yeah, no. And it's interesting because I always say this one size fits all doesn't necessarily take into account bioindividuality. And I love that you address, you know, the cofactors for healthy thyroid production, because that is oftentimes overlooked and kind of missed because automatically people are going to, oh, you need medication, you need medication. Instead, let's look at, you know, let's look at their magnesium. Let's look at their iron, like looking at all these other pieces of the puzzle. I did have a couple of questions about, and it's interesting, these come and go the Wiley protocol. I'm sure I probably know your answer to this. For anyone that's not familiar, T.S. Wiley is, I don't even know if I'd call her a scientist. She's just an individual that believes strongly and fervently that women should cycle till they die and to stay on a, on a therapeutic enough hormones to continue having menstrual cycles, et cetera. So I would say on the fringe of hormone replacement therapy, definitely an outlier. Yeah, I don't use it. I've seen patients that have been on it I think one of the advantages of being in menopause is that you're in steady state. I mean, come on, every woman knows what those ups and downs and those roller coasters feel like, and they're not fun. And so, yeah, I don't use it in my practice. I think, you know, I have kind of an optimal range that I'm looking for with estrogen and progesterone and testosterone replacement. And it's different for each woman. You know, we use clinical signs and symptoms to kind of figure out what their optimal range is and I'm more of a fan of steady state. Now, depending on how you're replacing it, you're always going to see peaks and troughs anytime you're using some sort of medication. But plus, I mean, I just think that the level of titration of some of these things, like people are busy, like we got lives to lead. <laughs> exactly. I don't want to be titrating. You're an advantage of being in menopause. So exactly, but. exactly. And lastly, there's a woman asking, she's in menopause. She knows that she's concerned about sarcopenia. So she recognizes there's this muscle loss with aging. She's already osteopenic. She's eating really healthy. She's doing strength training. Does she have to be on bioidenticals? And she said, I recognize that I'm not being treated by Dr. Seaman, but in a general kind of feeling, you know, if you're five years into menopause, not on bioidenticals or not on hormonal replacement therapy, you know, you're already osteopenic and doing all these other things. If she's trying to avoid being on biphosphates or any of the bone building medications, are there ways around this or is she eventually going to need to probably consider hormonal replacement therapy? Yeah. So there's certainly lots of personal risk factors that could be at play genetics. You know, if she's been thin, if she's ever smoked when she went through menopause, like how long her years of estrogen exposure were, 
But uh, really when it comes to postmenopausal bone health, there's really three things that I talk to patients about. The first one is adequate protein consumption. Protein helps build strong bones. Bones aren't this like magical substance. They're a type of connective tissue. I mean, and then the calcium comes in and solidifies it and hardens it. So we're right. We do lose bone health as we age, but adequate protein consumption can help with bone health. The second one is resistance training. And it has to be something that actually places stress on the bones. Now you can do that with resistance bands. That's like the cheapest, easiest way to do something from home. You know, if you're afraid of using weights or dumbbells or or something like that, but unfortunately like yoga, Pilates, some of these other very low intensity exercises don't put enough stress on the bone. And so protein resistance training. And then the third one is hormone optimization. So depending how old this patient is, And depending on what their level of osteopenia or osteoporosis, it's not an FDA approved indication for hormone replacement therapy, but I've still used it in patients. I've still had patients that have been on it for that reason. And yes, a lot of the osteoporosis medications can come with really horrible side effects that they're not magical by any means. And so, you know, from my perspective, adequate protein consumption, resistance training, and optimal hormones. And it's never too early to start. You should start worrying about this in your 30s and in your 40s and in your 50s and not when you get to 65 and you've ordered a DEXA and they've got osteoporosis already. So when it comes to hormone replacement, a very important thing for everybody listening and to understand is when we're talking about osteoporosis, cardiovascular dementia, Hormone replacement therapy is better at prevention than it is at reversal. So once you get to, you know, 65, 70 years old, you can't just start estrogen and thinks these things are going to be reversed. It's so much better at helping prevent it when you're in that golden window, which is five to 10 years from menopause. Well, thank you so much. I know that our conversation today will be truly invaluable. Let the listeners know what's next for you. I know that I'm really grateful. I'm going to be seeing you in a couple of weeks out in Omaha, but what are, you're starting a podcast, which I've already listened to a couple episodes. They're amazing. How can people connect with you? What's next? Yeah. So I'm super active on social media, mostly on Instagram. I can't Mm -hmm. be on all the channels. I don't have time for it. (laughs) But you can find me at Dr. Fit and Fabulous on Instagram, Dr. Fit and Fabulous over on Facebook. I've got a YouTube channel. I just started the Fit and Fabulous podcast, which has been like two years in the making. You totally understand like the time consumption of this because I do work full-time in clinical practice. So I'm a full-time OBGYN and I've got three daughters. Yes, Keto Summit Omaha is happening, which is an incredible event here. This is our second year having the event right here in Omaha, Nebraska. It's August 19th and 20th. And Cynthia is going to make the flight out here. I can't wait to hug you in person, but uh, it's going to be a wonderful event. And then the days after Keto Summit, I'm doing a 54-mile walk from the Capitol in Lincoln up here to Omaha to raise money for homeless veterans. So those two events are happening simultaneous. And then all at the same time, because I can't just do one thing at a time, <laughs> we're opening a new business here in town called Upgrade Performance Institute, which is this incredible space that is resistance training focused. We've got a gym, we've got a DEXA scanner, so we can actually see how much muscle and, and bone mass and fat mass people have. We've got IV hydration and peptides and anti-aging modalities. And I'm not leaving my clinical practice, but I am the medical director over there. And I'll be helping a lot with uh, nutritional consults. So it really will expand my ability to kind of help people with that. Because when I'm in my OBGYN practice, I want to be doing gynecology and 
taking care of my obstetric patients. And I've just been bombarded just even locally in my community, helping people with insulin resistance and nutrition. And so this is going to be a great avenue to help more people. Oh, I think that sounds amazing. What a blessing you are to your patients and to your community, always giving of yourself to others. I will make sure that we include all the links to your website and your social media and as well as your podcast. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Cynthia. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. 